Hi there, I'm Robin Anir, and this is Nothing on TV, a podcast that ransacks Trove newspapers, the National Library of Australia's fabulous digital repository of historical newsprint, to bring you stories from a time when there was literally nothing on TV. I've got something a bit different for you this time. In the past couple of weeks, I've been lucky enough to be given two bundles of old newspapers, real newspapers, yellowed with age, crumbling at the edges and worn through at the folds. A box full of old papers came from Barb. They'd been kept by her mother as souvenirs of significant events from the 1930s through to the 90s. Melbourne centenary, the end of World War II, the Kennedy assassinations, Harold Holt's drowning, the moon landing, Whitlam's sacking, all the way to the first Gulf War. The front pages with their headlines are great, but best of all, kind of illuminating the underbelly of the news are the advertisements. Like, for instance, in the same edition of the Melbourne Sun that had Neil and Buzz cavorting on the lunar surface, there's a full-page ad for Hickory Four-Spot Panties in new, brilliant, moonlight-white power stretch. That four-spot refers to the four trouble spots. One, waistline. Two, seat line. Three, tummy. And four, thigh. Which the panties claim to fix by means of a magic inner sheath. What we're talking about, of course, is a latter-day girdle, or maybe proto-spanx, but what we see, and you can see it too at my show page, what we see is a lass decked out in her panty girdle with matching bra and a bubble helmet floating blissfully in the moon's orbit. The point being that hickory four-spot panties give you a leggy feeling as free as walking in space. A leggy feeling. Yeah, right. I mean, why else would anyone join the space program? The other lot of papers I was given by Anwen in the shape of two very slim editions of the Advertiser, which, according to the masthead, circulates very extensively throughout the Eltham, Whittlesea and Heidelberg shires, that is, on the northeastern fringes of Melbourne, pre-suburbia. The papers date from the 1930s and Anwen had found them among her dad's belongings. The advertiser came out every Friday. It ran to six pages and sold for tuppence. On June 23, 1933, that's the earlier of the two copies, the paper was in its 62nd year of publication. It had first appeared as the Evelyn Observer and South and East Burke Record. Then, for a few years, it was the Eltham and Whittlesea Shires Advertiser and Diamond Creek Valley Advocate. There's a mouthful for you until in 1922 it became simply The Advertiser. So, June 1933, what was happening in The Advertiser? Well, at Greensborough, that'd be in Heidelbergshire, soon to become a city, from Greensborough came a report of the Podargus Club. This club had been started three or four years earlier by some leading lights in the local Methodist church and seems to have been aimed at younger people, not necessarily congregants, perhaps in their late teens and twenties. The Podargus Club took its name from the nocturnal Podargus Strigoides, or Tawny Frogmouth, 
native to the area, and its activities, the clubs that is, not the frogmouths, its activities were a mix of fun-loving and intellectual. There were lectures, game nights, and members showed a decided penchant for fancy dress. On 23rd of June, 1933, we read of a Padagas Club meeting the previous Wednesday evening, at which club president, the Reverend G. Arthur, B.A., delivered an address entitled, What is Really Real? Here's the report. After dealing with many philosophical and scientific facts, Mr. Arthur brought his listeners to the amazing conclusion that there was nothing really real in life at all. He stated that there was nothing lasting and everything material could be destroyed or changed by some agency, mainly fire, and be reduced to ashes and dust and so with our bodies. But here, Mr. Arthur brought his audience to the climax of his address, the soul. Here, he explained our soul was really the possessor of our bodies, that we actually did not own a soul, and that the only reality of the soul was through God. Mr. Arthur answered many questions put to him by members, but the subject being so immense, and many of the questions opening up other vast lines of thought, time had to be called all too quickly. Now, God notwithstanding, you can see how someone might discern a certain bleakness in the philosophy espoused by the Reverend Arthur, that there was nothing really real in life, nothing lasting, that all was reducible to ashes and dust. But it's probably mere chance that immediately following the Padagas Club report on page one of the advertiser, there appeared a terse item headed, Body Online. The crew of the 737 Up Eltham train found the mutilated body of a woman on the railway line near the McLeod station on Sunday night. Turning to page two, we read of the death, unconnected to the above, I hope, of a former Panton Hill resident, Miss Jane Turner, who lived in this district for over 30 years. Many residents will remember her attachment to her large black dog, which accompanied her everywhere. And from Kinglake, there came a report headed, Kicked by Pony. William Thompson, youngest son of Mr and Mrs F Thompson, was kicked on the chin by a pony on Tuesday. No bones were broken, but face and chin were badly bruised. This was Billy's second day at school. Oh dear. Now, pages three and four of my copy of the Advertiser for June 23rd, 1933 are missing. I see that a good part of... A good part of page five, though, is devoted to the kiddies section, the Pals Corner, which was edited with jolly good humour and a dash of old-timey wisdom by a person who called himself Grandad. Now, Grandad published jokes and limericks sent in by his pals, Gwen Woolcock of Hurstbridge was awarded a star for this one. Teacher, what does this mean, Dickie? I told you to draw a fish on your slate for homework last night, and here is your slate, quite blank. Dickie, well, miss, you see, I drew such a real-looking fish that our puss licked it off. <laughs> the cat ate his homework. Well, how about this one from Elsie Lorimer of Waddle Glen? Why is a Member of Parliament like a shrimp? Because he has MP at the end of his name. She got a star 
as well. Grandad also responded to readers' letters. The letters themselves weren't printed, only his affirming replies like these. To Ivan Watson of Archie's Creek, Welcome, Ivan, and I hope you will soon get over your loneliness. And to Merle Saville of Hurstbridge, So, you're going to be a shopkeeper? Well, Merle, that will be fine. Still on page five, we find a public notice, clearly not written by the kindly granddad. Commonwealth of Australia, census. This would be the third census since Federation. A census will be taken of all persons in the Commonwealth on the night between Thursday 29th of June and Friday 30th of June 1933. And get this. Penalty. £10 for refusing to supply the required information. £50 for an untrue statement. £50 for making an untrue statement. Well, first, how would they know? And second, (laughs) so much for the being nothing really real in life. Take that, Reverend Arthur. The census takers say otherwise. Now, the back page, that's page six, is mainly taken up by sporting results and market prices, heifers, light porkers, pullets and what have you, as well as small ads, like Ray Rogers, the local builder, warned readers, don't neglect the fly menace. He would fit door and window screens to guard against it. Mrs Fraser, proprietress of the Restawild Tea Rooms opposite the post office at Eltham, guaranteed promptitude and satisfaction while Miss Jean Fraser, a daughter, perhaps, desires to intimate to the ladies of the Eltham district that she has commenced business as a ladies' hairdresser. And from Hurstbridge came a report that the school committee had met on June 14 and decided to purchase a football for the boys. Well, there was a depression on, remember. And that is pretty much it for that edition of The Advertiser. Now, the other copy I've got here dates to roughly three years later, May 15, 1936. All six pages are here, but somehow I get the impression of a growing and more restless community, starting with the leading article on page one. It has this rambling headline, Public Meeting, Re Eltham Hall. Did meeting serve any purpose? Question mark. Large attendance, public reluctant to discuss position. And the article that follows is likewise rambling and cryptic, though it does hint at schisms in the Eltham community as well as between Eltham and its neighbours. The reluctant public seem to have found their voices on a later page of the paper with several letters to the editor on the subject. One writer implores, let us all work together, sinking petty differences and personal prejudice, and work to let the whole go on. Clearly there was all kinds of strife on the Eltham Council, Another column is headed, Councillor Hewitt hits back. Small town politics. Now, there's no report from the Pedagas Club, and I've read elsewhere, via Trove, that the club was pretty much washed up by this time. Perhaps it had served its purpose as an intellectual incubator come singles club. At any rate, its founding members seem to have moved on, with no one replacing them. Now, from Whittlesea came a report of several residents having been fined up to two pounds for having wireless sets without a listener's licence. Now, I'd forgotten if I ever knew that you needed a licence 
to own a radio. But now I come to think of it, isn't that how the ABC was originally funded? For God's sake, don't anyone mention it to the Minister for Communications. What's his name? Mitch? No. I forget. Anyway, in the March of Progress Department, a one-line item at the foot of page one advised that the public telephone cabinet at the Eltham Post Office is to be lit by electricity. How did you manage before that, I wonder? Was it BYO kerosene lamp, or did you have to rely on moonlight to make a phone call? Or perhaps Mrs Fraser left a light on at the tea rooms across the road. Turning to page two, there are a couple of headlines that catch the eye. Well, my eye. Cherry Tree Road. Repairs long overdue. Residents bitter. Now, there's an age-old story. And there's this one, heading the report of a speeding offence. 75 miles per hour along Eltham Road, police car fails to keep up. Page three gives us sporting and social news. We read of the successful revival of the South Morang Sports Day, formerly known as the Farmer's Picnic. There was a billy can race. Competitors galloped bareback to a billy of water, picked it up and rode with it, the winner being the one with the most water in their billy at the finish line. There was a slow bicycle race, that sounds like a hoot, and a bicycle bending race where riders wove a course between poles. And there were foot races for married men, married ladies and old buffers. The guessing the weight of the fat sheep competition resulted in a tie so that the sheep had to be cut in half. I'm hoping it was a carcass. And the buyer of the lucky button, Mr G. Body, took home a pair of silk stockings. Bringing the whole thing up to date was a thrilling display of aerobatics by local resident T. Vagano. In an aero club plane, he performed many feats of daring, including power dives and spiral drops, and we were all sorry to see the plane finally turn and disappear into the sky in the direction of the city. Now, speaking of the city, I see a report from Panton Hill on page 5, headed Careless Tourists. While two motorcyclists were adjusting a mechanical defect in Flat Rock Road during the weekend, one of them lit a cigarette and, being from the city, threw the match carelessly down among some dry grass. The grass caught fire and in a few minutes was blazing fiercely. When the motorcyclists saw what they had done, they mounted their machines and rode away without making the slightest attempt to beat out the fire, which spread rapidly and consumed three acres of grass on Mr Smythe's property before it was under control. There'd been a good few city folk camping at Diamond Creek over the Easter break, and with one or two exceptions, they were orderly and well-behaved. Among the exceptions was a party of eight or nine young men camped on the riverside property of Councillor J. Ryan, who spent most of the time firing into the side of the hill with a pea rifle. The worst they did was to drive one of Councillor Ryan's cows into the river, causing him the necessity of going down late at night to assist it out. The monthly meeting of the Montmorency Horticultural Society featured a lecture on how to design and plant a rockery garden, and the King Lake State School Mothers Club was congratulated for its initiative in supplying cocoa to the children at lunchtime. The back page has mainly advertisements and amusement notices, and the main thing that strikes you is there was an awful lot of euchre being played. Dances were a big thing, 
but it seems you never put on a dance without also running a euchre party for non-dancers. At that period, the most dependable means of fundraising for the local hospital or whatever seems to have been to stage a queen or popular girl contest throughout the district. Each town would put up a contestant and the title would go to the young woman who raised the most money, usually by holding dances in just such a hall as the one that was generating muted controversy in Eltham. But there just weren't enough Saturday nights to go round, and as someone from Montmorency pointed out, their queen apparently was um, on the verge of retirement, possibly a breakdown. As they said, midweek dancers do not pay, not even with euchre laid on. Now before we're done with the advertising, let me just turn back to the front page. On both my copies, in the topmost right corner, above the masthead, it says, Printed and published by Decimus Horace Mott. Isn't that a name ripe with classical gravitas? I wonder if he was Decimus Horace, or whether he went the full Latin, Decimus Horace. I bet you anything, though. His friends called him Des. The advertiser had been an early recruit to Decimus Mott's stable of local papers that would grow to 33 suburban and small-town titles, and become leader community newspapers. Leader newspapers is still going, only these days it's owned by News Limited. Decimus was the tenth son, hence the name, the tenth son of a colonial newspaper pioneer named George Mott and his wife, Allegra. In his early twenties, Decimus had joined the rush to the West Australian goldfields, where he started the Kalgoorlie Miner, that's a newspaper of course, before heading back east to found the Border Mail at Albury with one of his brothers. About 20 years later, in 1924, Decimus branched out on his own, buying the Northcote and Preston Leader in Melbourne. That was the first link in the chain that would become Leader Newspapers. That's part of Australian newspaper history, I know, so it ought to interest me. But really, his name is the best bit, don't you think? Thanks to Anwen and Barb for supplying the really real newspapers for this episode of Nothing on TV in a month where I battled my obligatory second bout of flu for the year. (coughs) That was a sample cough. Next month, I'll be back with the final episode for the season. And the month after that, I've got a book coming out. It's called Nothing New, and it's a history of second hand from, well, starting from a time when new was barely a thing, then taking in street markets, pawn shops and junk shops, lost property auctions, jumble sales, white elephant stalls, the trading post, garage sales, hard rubbish, vintage and, of course, op shops, and ending with a look at the unwanted stuff we ship off to places like Africa and the teeming second-hand scene there. So, nothing new. Yes, I am extending my nothing franchise. They say that nothing comes from nothing, but we'll see. Nothing New will be published by text, and you'll find it in the shops in November. Dare I say, it'd make an ideal Christmas gift. Nothing on TV is homemade in my Verlin Heights studio in Castlemaine, Victoria, Australia, and is produced by the indefatigable Mrs Bradley. Have I called her that before? I think I have. Anyway the indefatigable Mrs Bradley, literary agent and muse. Take a look at my show page, that's robinandear.com slash nothingontv, 
to see highlights of the newspapers I looked at in this episode, as well as pictures and further reading from other episodes. There's an email link there too, if you'd like to drop me a line via Mrs Bradley. You can find and download past episodes of the podcast at the show page or else at Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever it is you listen. And why not subscribe and have new episodes drop as if by magic into your podcast feed. Also at the show page you'll find links to Trove newspapers and to a stack of resources that'll help you delve into Trove's marvels for yourself. Just in case, you know, there's nothing on TV. I'm Robin Anea. Talk to you next time.